What I thought we would do, we haven't had one of these for a few Sundays, is um, this morning, and this is a particularly good time, as I told you, uh, Manny, Dr. Manny, as we always called him, because we loved him so much, um, <laughs> said that after Easter there was there's always this drastic reduction in uh, <laughs> attendance, and... Uh, so we, of course, approved Manny here at the dispensable <laughs> church. But this actually makes for a better question and answer session. Perhaps you've noticed this yourself. The smaller the audience, the more in-depth uh, it's possible to go. I'm not quite sure what goes on there. Maybe it's that there's a certain resistance. And as you add more and more egos the resistance becomes greater and greater, and it's something you can actually feel. It is, of course, possible to override this, and you can pretend it's not there, and you can uh, speak as if you were only speaking to two or three people. But what I like doing is listening very careful, carefully to the audience, sort of feeling the people who are here, and it is, it's always struck me as uh, very interesting that the larger the group, uh, the less that can be said. So we have a smaller group this morning, and that's very good for the kind of session we're going to have. So let me ask you to do something that we've done before, and that is to close your eyes, and for just a moment, take into consideration the people around you, and see that every one of these people violated Manny's dictum. <laughs> and so you have the creme de la creme here this morning, the, the essential true believer. Came through snow, wet mud, and after Easter blues and everything. So simply see that your brother and your sister sits beside you. And that just like you, they try very, very hard. That's what we must see. We all try so hard. If we just realized how hard each person tries, we couldn't possibly condemn another person. <coughs> and so that's true of the people around you, your brothers and your sisters who walk beside you. And they will arrive home just as you will. This is absolutely assured. Everyone in this room will get there. Everyone in every other room. And in the streets, and in the buildings, and in the hospitals, and the nursing homes. will get there. This is taken care of. This is the river that we roll gently down. This is the destiny that we relax into. And so now look in your heart and see that you too try hard, but you keep running up against something. What is it that bothers you? What is it that you find difficult? And perhaps this morning you could share that and we could discuss it just a little bit because if it comes from your heart, then you can be sure that there are a number of other people we're having that same difficulty, and so we wish to help each other, and let's do that this morning. So I'll be silent for just a moment and see if there's such a situation in your life. Okay, so what should we talk about this morning? Yes. Okay, uh, since these are being recorded, I'm going to try to remember to repeat the question. And the question was essentially, uh, our mind is so noisy. There seems to be so much static and commotion in our mind. And it seems so difficult to quieten it. And how do we quieten it? This is a touchy area. It's difficult to speak about this without getting some people caught up in a useless battle. Trying to control your mind or fight your mind is just to put yourself straight in misery. And so above all, you don't wish to do that. 
And I've told you my experience of doing that back in the old days when I was trying to uh, reconcile Krishnamurti and Fritz Perls. <laughs> the only thing I could come up with is don't think. <clears throat> uh, and I, I went through, I can tell you, I went through several miserable months trying not to think and doing battle. Even though Krishnamurti had said that the attempt to not think is simply one belief battling another belief. However, as you go along, you will become increasingly aware of your mind and what it's doing. You'll become aware of how you accept these little premises as you go through the day. They sneak in there. The way things are. Um, you didn't get enough sleep last night, and that's just the way it is. Uh, you're not getting along with your spouse right now, and that's just the way it is. And there was some incident this morning that showed you that that's just the way it is, and you're just going to have to live with it. The weather is just bad this time of year, and that's just the way it is. You have a cold, and that's just the way it is. You're late, and you're just going to have to be late all the way to the appointment, and that's just the way it is. Something sneaks in there. Life is demanding too much of you. There is just too much to do. There is no way you can do everything that you have to do. It's just impossible. And that little premise just sneaks in there one more time. This is one reason it's a good idea to clean your house up before you go to bed. If, it, if, it, if possible, to put things away so that this doesn't, this isn't the first thing that strikes you when you get up, all these things that need to be done. And you'll become aware of these little premises and then you'll become aware of the dynamic, the, the phenomenon that after a few minutes, a few seconds, or even maybe as much as an hour, you are suddenly angry or you're suddenly depressed. And you will see that it's not over the thing that it seems to be over. I am not upset for the reason I think is one of the lessons in A Course in Miracles. And we're not. It isn't the, it, it, this isn't the thing. Now, if you'll just look at what you are upset about and close your eyes, you will see that there, are, there have been other occasions when this very thing, or something quite similar to it, did not upset you. Haven't we all noticed that? It'll upset us one moment, and the next day, this same thing doesn't upset us. Of course it's not the thing that's upsetting us. What is it? It's the fragile state of our mind. Our mind has become slightly shattered. It's, it's like a thin layer of ice. It's quite dangerous. It looks as if it's solid, but it's not. A considerable amount of its substance has, has melted away, and suddenly we find ourselves falling through the ice. It isn't the particular spot in the ice that is causing it. But in the beginning, that is our tendency to blame the particular spot in the ice for our fall. It's the thinning of the ice that has caused the problem. It is the acceptance of some premise, some little something snuck in there, and before you realized it, you got depressed, you got angry, you got lonely, or something. And so as you watch your mind, you'll begin to see that your mind, the way it is set up, the ego part of our mind, is capable of getting us in, in trouble. And one of the ways that you will learn to deal with depression or anger or something like that is to stop as soon as you realize that it's occurring before the outbreak that makes it even worse, that involves other people. And to look at the contents of your mind and see if you can find this little premise that you picked up. It will have nothing to do with the situation. It might occasionally, but it almost never has anything to do with the triggering situation. 
So that is one of the things that you'll begin to see, and many of you, of course, have already begun to see that. And then you'll begin to see things like this chatter, like some uh, angry squirrel up in, the, in a tree, you know, and you're walking under its nest, and it's not happy about this. Has anyone ever had a chipmunk or a squirrel chatter angrily at you? You know, fuss and fuss and fuss at you. I remember Gail and I uh, were in a little cabin up in Colorado. We had uh, we were ranch hands uh, up there. I was cleaning out beaver dams, and she was uh, cleaning cabins. And uh, we had a little cabin assigned to us. And I had to go out and empty the garbage uh, every day. And this this squirrel just was incensed that my path took it under its tree. You know. Now. This was an interesting lesson for me, and I wrote about it in uh, notes to myself because I happened to be writing that book at that particular time. It disamused me that this squirrel got so angry. Why did it amuse me and not, why didn't I feel defensive and argue back <laughs> and say, I have a right to do this? And so I'm like, Who's, uh, whose land do you think this is anyway? You just, it's just the tree's yours. Uh, and you know how we do with people when, when they attack us we get defensive and uh, but this amused me why did it amuse me? because I didn't want anything from the squirrel I, I wanted nothing from the squirrel I expected nothing from the squirrel now if I needed the squirrel's behavior Let's say I was taping the sounds of nature and I had this expensive sound system laid out there. Now it would, been, it would have been different. I would have been angry back at the squirrel in some way. May have even thrown rocks at it or something. No, no, you know I wouldn't have done that, don't you? And we begin to notice our mind. It's doing this all the time. It's chattering. And we begin to notice as we look at it, chattering in a judgmental way. Now, the reason that we don't see this so early on is that it is saying, oh, that's wonderful. Oh, that's terrible. Oh, that's wonderful. Oh, that's terrible. That's good. That's bad. That's ugly. That's beautiful. That's so forth. And so we think that every time it says, oh, that's beautiful. Oh, that's wonderful. Or, oh, I'm special. Oh, everything's going my way. Or so forth, so on that this is not anger. But of course it is. To exalt, to push up, is equally as much an attack as to debunk. Thumbs up is an attack, and thumbs down is an attack. And most of you have done something in your life for which you have received praise. And if this has happened recently, then you are familiar with the feeling of discomfort that comes when you are being praised, when your ego is being praised. This is a perfectly innocent thing that we do to each other. It's not anything we should ever call anyone on. It's simply an attempt to become close and be friends. But it is, of course, a little mistake. And you can feel that mistake when someone praises you. If it's coming from their ego, now if it's just a simple expression of gratitude and thanks, it's heartfelt, then you feel actually closer to the person. It's a sharing. It's a brotherhood, a sisterhood, and you feel it. It's a bond. It's, it's, it's the speaking of a bond. But so often this is not what takes place. There's this fear that we're not close to this person and that if we somehow um, pat their ego, stroke their ego a little bit, bolster them up, puff them up, whatever, however way you want to speak of it, that we will get closer to this person. But when you yourself have been on the receiving end of this, you of course realize that what it actually produces is a feeling of separation. I'm different, I'm set apart. Because that's, in fact, what the person is saying. You're so much better than I am, or you're so much better than other people, or you're so talented, or you're so this, or you're so that. And so suddenly you're now set apart. You're not one. You're different. 
And you see, to tell someone you are set apart, you are different, is to also tell them you are lonely, you are cut off, you are not one. But as I say, it's a very innocent little mistake. But because we're doing this as we go through the day, oh, that building's so lovely, oh, that building's so ugly. Oh, what this politician says is so wonderful, what that politician says is so absolutely false, it's outrageous. I'm going to nail up stickers against them. <laughs> Posters, whatever. We don't recognize that both things are chatter. It's just in a different key, that's all. As I say, it's innocent. We don't want to point this out to someone. It always pushes someone in the wrong direction to make them feel criticized. It is not for their own good that we do it. We think it's for our good that we do it, but we're mistaken. To make someone feel remorseful or criticized will not somehow shatter them into being a better person. You do not attack someone in, into being more gentle. Because to attack is to teach your belief in the value of attack. To criticize is to teach your belief in the value of criticizing. And so as we look, we see these kinds of things going on in our mind. We see just the din, the racket. And because we meditate from time to time, because we turn to our Father, because there's a quiet period, perhaps, before we go to sleep, we are beginning to know stillness. Stillness is a thing. It's a reality. In the beginning, it just seems like the absence of something. And that's a good place to start. But after a while, you'll see that it's filled with God. It's filled with all the angels of heaven. It's filled with all your brothers and sisters who have laid aside their egos and have remained to help us. But it does not have to be filled with something dramatic. You will just love the stillness. You'll begin to love the quietness. I saw a sign once that was done in pencil And I think it was in the 1800s. It was hanging on someone's wall. And I'm, I'll see if I can remember it. Uh, I love silence. There is such little harm in it. And it was done by a little girl. And the family had kept it. It was a great-grandmother or something. I don't know. And they'd framed it. That's the first thing you'll notice. There's such little harm in the silence, in the stillness. And now you wish to be less harmful. You don't even want to attack people in your mind any longer. But you must wait until you see this. You can't assume that your thinking is somehow not a friend to you, but not really see that and attempt to eliminate it, if you do that, you will get into a real unhappy battle with yourself. But if you are beginning to sense that, that this is of no use to you, nothing comes of all this chatter, then you can begin practicing stilling your mind. And how do you do that? Now, those of you who have, may not have attended a uh, question and answer session here. We have, a, we have a grand tradition in the dispensable church. The questions are very short and the answers go on and on and on. And there's a certain irony in a long answer about stillness. <laughs> However, I can't help myself. I'll just take another sip of the bear and we'll... <laughs> um, So how do you still your mind? <clears throat> there is no one way to do it. There is no right way to do it. There are a thousand ways to do it. Perhaps some of you wonder why I use the word father. Because many people have heard that word ever since they were a child. 
It goes deep within their heart just to hear the word, My Father, our Father, which art in heaven. How many times have you said that? And so just to hear the word Father, notice it brings a certain stillness. I have noticed this. If I just say the word Father, the group that I am talking to becomes still. Now, I didn't use the word Father. You'll notice that if you go back and listen to those early tapes of the dispensable church, I don't think I used the word Father ever. Maybe I did. I can't remember. But I certainly used it very, very seldom because I didn't want to uh, get involved in the controversy over uh, sexist terminology. But I found that I couldn't worry about that all the time. A Course in Miracles was people, there's, there's, there's chairs uh, all along up here and uh, any of you who can move in towards the center a little bit uh, be great. There's, on the front row there's some seats. And I was worrying a lot about how I, how I was saying things. And I found that there were so many issues. There are so many different groups of people that I might make unhappy if I said it this way or said it that way. And finally, I just realized I just have to say it the way it's in my heart. All I can do is present my way home. And if someone finds that helpful... Fine, if they don't, then they'll go someplace and listen to someone else's way home. And so I simply use the word Father because it means a great deal to me. Of course, God has no uh, sex. Obviously, there is no sexual differences. There are no differences, period, of any kind. We are one. In our heart, we all wish the same thing just to be understood and wish to love and to be close and to be happy and to go through the day in peace. That's what we wish for. And so just to close your eyes and say the word God over and over. Jerry Jampolsky uses Jesus Christ. It was real funny. Uh, I won't identify the program, but one of the big uh, pro religious programs on television, it's an interview program, um, called him up and asked him if he would be on the interview program. And uh, he said, yes, he'd be happy to do that. He said, well, now, Dr. Jampolsky, we just want to check and make sure that you are a Christian. Uh, he said, no, I'm not a Christian, I'm a Jew. <coughs> And they said, but we understood that you pray to Jesus. He said, oh, yes, I do pray to Jesus, but I do. <laughs> they kept calling him back. They would discuss this evidently in some board meeting, <laughs> call him back. They couldn't, they never could uh, figure out what to do about that answer. <laughs> I don't know if they ever had him or not, but I remember at the time all these telephone calls were going on. <laughs> so, Jerry, the MD, the Jew prays Jesus Christ as he breathes. Jesus Christ. He calls it, calls it the Jesus prayer. I've heard different versions of what people call the Jesus prayer. I, I don't remember if he's exhaling when he says the Jesus or inhaling. It probably doesn't matter, does it? <laughs> it's one of those many things that don't matter. Um... <clears throat> uh, Many of the Eastern people say the word Ram over and over as they're dying. They just say Ram, 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 Ram. It does not matter. And so, of course, that's one way of doing it. Some sort of uh, little, uh, call it affirmation or mantra, or just repeating some idea or some word over and over, can often still the mind. It's a very good thing that to do. Uh, 
just breathing, many people find helpful. Just... <laughs> That's it. <laughs> well, I was just gonna... <laughs> so you just perhaps watch your breathing without trying to control it, without trying to do anything and just watch it. Many people find that way. And of course, there are many, many techniques and systems of breathing. I've told you of a little practice that I enjoy a great deal, which is that as I'm driving along, I say, from that power line to that power line, no thoughts. And so I practice silence for just a little period. When I'm swimming laps, from here to the end of the pool, no thoughts. And I find that if I concentrate for just that little period of time, that there's a cumulative effect as this goes along. This is not a happy thing to do for many people. They don't yet see that there's any value in it, and so it becomes a struggle. Interestingly enough, just watching your thoughts without attempting to do anything to them has a stilling effect, a quieting effect. And this is a wonderful, wonderful practice. It's something that I think everyone comes to in some way. It's not necessarily something that you always do or think of yourself as doing it in that way. But I think that probably everyone eventually ends up doing this even if they don't describe it this way to themselves. You begin to identify more with that which is watching the thought than the thought itself. And this has a quieting effect. Do you see why it would? Because that which is watching the thought has less thought than what it's watching. Now, it doesn't have complete absence of thought. And later you will see that there is something watching that which is watching the thought. And does the ego indeed have all these multiple personalities? Indeed it does. The ego has simply taken truth and scattered it and divided into levels and everything else. But you don't need to worry about all that. Just watch your thinking. All these things come in time, these insights. And it's sufficient to say that you will reach deeper and deeper levels of quietness and stillness. And so to just watch your thinking. Perhaps even describe to yourself what it's doing, it's thinking now, it's thinking about, uh, you see. That's fine, that's fine to do that. Many people find it's helpful to write the thought down. Those of you who have written your thoughts down or have had a little practice period during the day in which you just write your thoughts down for just 10 minutes a day and do that for, say, a month. And then you've gone back and looked at what you've written down have seen the effect that writing the thought down has. Just looking at the thought, or writing it down, or saying it out loud to yourself, casts the light of God on it to some degree. It casts your sanity on it to some degree. And it loses a great deal of its hold on your mind just to look at it. Because you sense that it is not what you believe. That's the interesting thing. All these thoughts that we think during the day, we don't even believe them. But we sure think we do in the beginning. So how do you still your mind? There are a thousand ways. I've mentioned just a few. Anything that comes to you, picturing yourself in some quiet place, Letting your thoughts drift lazily. Let's do that together. Let's all close our eyes and just try that one. That is so simple. We've done that, I think, once or twice here before. And so, first of all, become still because you see your body is part of your mind. And if it is agitated and uncomfortable, it's as if there's a little disturbance there in your mind itself. It doesn't have to be that way. 
eventually we learn that we don't have to think a certain way because our body feels a certain way. That there's no actually no tie there at all. But in the beginning, it's as if the body actually seems to have the ability to disturb the mind, so to quieten the body is a good thing. So you become restful and peaceful, still, still your body. And now, take all holes off of your thought. Take your hands off of your thought. Judge your thought not. Say to yourself, perhaps, I don't know what is a good or a bad thought. I know nothing about this subject. I am not in a position to judge my thinking, nor would I wish to if I were. So you will have no judgment of your thoughts. No judgment at all. And just allow your mind to drift lazily on a sea of peace, a little bobbing boat. So you just let yourself think anything. Lazily, happily. I have nothing to do. I have nowhere to go. Okay, now why is that different? Why is that different than the way we usually go through the day? Aren't we usually, aren't we doing that very thing? No, we aren't. Because as you sat there, you had a single purpose. And it was impossible for you to get caught up in a thought. Perhaps you noticed that. You would start thinking something, but your mind would not stay with it. Because your purpose was peace and quiet. And to stay with the thought brings disturbance. And so we've uh, mentioned uh, here in the past the uh, great uh, metaphysical statement from Texas, move along, little doggy. <laughs> and that's what you want to say to your thoughts, you see. You just move them along. You don't get caught up. That's, that's pure meditation. That's practicing stillness. Simply to watch your mind and see, have you gotten caught up in some line of thought? Have you now become tense about it, preoccupied? Is it now important to you? Another image we've used that's sometimes helpful to people is to think of your mind as a, as a little stream in which there are fish. And you just watch the fish swim by. You don't reach down and grab a fish. Now, but you will. We are all in the habit of doing this. We reach down and suddenly we take one up out of the stream. If you watch your mind, you can begin to notice when you're doing this. You grab hold of the fish. And that's when the disquiet comes. The dis-ease. The unhappiness. That's when the premise is accepted. And that's when... Something is going to happen because it will take form in your life if you don't see it and let it go. It will eventually take form in your life. Long answer. Golly. Okay. Yes. Together enough to do it, and my mind goes crazy about, well, you should, you shouldn't, and I go, well, maybe you shouldn't bother him, and maybe you shouldn't criticize him, and, and I, you know, then I've got my thoughts going, but it's like social responsibility all the time. Yes. Confronted with this. Right. Like, yes. And of course, to do this doesn't imply that we either act or not act. It is impossible, in a sense, not to act in this world. We're always doing something. And whatever we do has consequences. It has consequences to pass the dog by and not do anything. And it has consequences to knock on the door. It has consequences to call the Humane Society. It has consequences to call the Animal Shelter. 
It has consequences to, to make a few phone calls and uh, perhaps talk to the people themselves and see what's going on. It has consequences to try to uh, stop thinking about the dog. You see that there's a result, there's a little trail that follows any of these things. So it is, it is not possible to uh, do nothing in the world. Do nothing is a, a statement that addresses itself to truth. It does not address itself to the world. You need do nothing is a statement of truth. It is the same statement as, I have nothing to do, I have nowhere to go. That is a fact. It is a fact to which we are awakening. We are rowing gently down the stream, which means we're not doing a single thing. <laughs> it's all taken care of. Uh, I believe I told you that a friend of mine uh, who uh, was very close to uh, Maharishi, uh, the Transcendental Meditation uh, Master, the, uh, told me this story. And I can't remember the exact details, but he used to work with him and he heard this particular story. This, <clears throat> this man was... Uh, was in a group that uh, used to meditate in India. It was an order. It was uh, uh, it was comparable to being uh, in a order of uh, Zen monks or something like that. This was a special order, and these people uh, just did very extensive, deep uh, spiritual practices, and they did them together. And as I recall the story, one day one of the the men arrived, and uh, he had cut off his hair. And the other man asked him why had he done that, and he said because there was a thought in his mind. The thought was should he cut off his hair, and so he cut off his hair in order to let go of the thought. A little while later. <coughs> Maharishi had a thought. Should he go to America and teach transcendental meditation? The thought didn't go away, so in order for it to go away, he simply went to America and taught transcendental meditation, and that's how TM started. That's neither good nor bad. It, it didn't matter whether he went or he didn't. But so very often... If we will do something overt, then the thought can be let go of. And it is an interesting thing that many people on a spiritual path think that they're not supposed to do anything overt. But if you will simply see the effect that doing something overt has on your mind, then you'll see that this is very often a shortcut to dealing with the question. And it is the question that must be dealt with. The ego thinks that it is the answer that must be achieved. And therefore, the mind stays eternally stirred up because there is no answer. There is no right or wrong answer. There's no perfect answer. There's no long-term answer. It always comes unraveled. There will always be another dog. And so you sit down and you say, this disturbs me, what these people are doing to this dog. This disturbs me. Perhaps they don't have enough money to have the mange treated. Perhaps a million other things. I don't know. I'm not in a position to know. Perhaps the mange is being treated, and I don't understand this. Perhaps the instructions are that the dog is supposed to be tied up until this condition is cured. I am not in a position to judge, nor need I second-guess the situation. But I will sit down, because this disturbs me, and in peace I will ask myself, what do I wish to do about this? And you allow yourself any option. There's no right thing to do. There are a thousand peaceful things that you can do. I remember uh, this very thing happened to Gail and me at a restaurant in uh, Albuquerque. There was a bird 
that had picked most of its feathers off, and it was in its cage, and it was just pe pecking itself constantly. And this was the most distressing thing. I just was very upset about this. But when I went to the owners of the restaurant, they said that the bird was being treated, that there was a drug, and it was being treated. Now, that's act. You see, if I had just tried to put this out of my mind, it could have stayed with me for days. But the simple act of going and asking the question, it, I could have done other things, but simply doing that allowed me to let go of the thought. So don't be afraid to act. But you must remember that it is the peace with which you act and not the action itself that does the work. Anything that you do that you're conflicted about doing will not let loose of the thought. So you will come up with an idea. Perhaps I could try this. Then do it with certainty. Do it with sureness. Because it is the sureness and the certainty that will heal. It's not the doing of it. If you're highly conflicted about what you're doing, it will have probably no effect and the thought will stay with you. And there may even be an additional thought added. Oh, I've made a mistake. I shouldn't have done that. No, no, no. Yes. <laughs> and uh, she pointed out that you seem to be very much an activist, and yet you're discouraging this congregation from being that kind of activist. I'm glad that you brought that up because this is, uh, this very often happens when I speak of peace or when people read a statement about peace or gentleness or stillness, then often people translate this into being physically uh, still. Uh, being gentle, uh, they translate into being a doormat, uh, and that kind of thing. Whereas true gentleness, for example, has tremendous strength and tremendous firmness, but no anger. Because it's not conflicted, that's why it has such tremendous strength. Uh, it is true that um, Gail and I have done many, this whole church started by was started it was an outgrowth of, of groups that we were doing groups for parents who had had children die and then uh, a Thursday night group that was open to uh, people with any kind of problem um, and then this church grew out of it and Gail and I used to be very active in crisis intervention even took uh, double duty nighttime duty and so forth. Um, and we do, and, and Mother Teresa is such a, a good example of this. And I've mentioned this before, but please let me mention it again because it's such a lovely example. She did what she could. She began doing what she could. There were people lying in the streets of Calcutta who were not as happy as they could be. They were not as comfortable as they could be as they died. Or perhaps they were sick and would recover. And so she just began taking them into her little place. She just began picking up the babies that she saw that had been dumped on the uh, dump heap and so forth. She did what she could. She did it quietly. And it so happens that the world discovered her. Most, in most cases, the world does not discover a person like that. But there was a fluke, and uh, she was discovered. And now the world called to her, Come, Mother Teresa, go all over the world, save us, give us speeches, please. And she said, No, thank you. And she went back to the streets of Calcutta. Of course, she occasionally gives talks and things like that. We must do what we can. 
we must do what we can. It will become impossible for you to not do what you can eventually. If I realize that there is someone who needs help and they believe that I can help them and I'm in a position to do so, I cannot let loose of that thought any longer. It is not possible for me to forget that person. It, is, it becomes a pain that becomes that just becomes a screaming pain very quickly. And I find myself picking up the phone even though I don't think I have time to do this. Because, of course, I do have time or the thought wouldn't stay with me. And yet there are all these other things that I don't do It would not be helpful for me to do them. So how much we do is completely individual. But I can tell you this, if it's not done with peace, because before I pick up the phone, I become clear. I surround the person in light. I see that I want to do this. I see that I'm not going to think about whether or not I should be doing it while I'm doing it. If I'm going to do it, I will do it with certainty. I will give it my all. I will do the best I can. And unless I see that, I don't pick up the phone. I work a little longer. And so we all must do that. I have said things like, be people-oriented, not issue-oriented. It's not a happy thing to be issue-oriented. It polarizes. Another example from Mother Teresa. And this is, doesn't mean that this, this is the way you should do if you are in the same situation, but it simply shows a possibility. That when she was in the uh, conference over in India a couple of years back, and uh, there was a petition being circulated by some of the presenters there, uh, a very general petition on uh, nuclear war and nuclear proliferation and so forth. Very, very general. General. She was handed it and asked, would she sign it? And she closed her eyes and prayed, and she said, no, I won't sign it, because if I do, I'll be taking sides against the people who don't believe this way. She is people-oriented, not issue-oriented. And for her, that was the correct thing to do. That would not be the right thing to do for someone else, necessarily. It isn't the act. But to her, this was her way of following the peace of God. Notice, though, that she closed her eyes and prayed first. Even Mother Teresa didn't know. And we are so quick to think that we know. We must learn to be slow. We must learn, as A Course in Miracles says, that the first reaction always comes from the ego. And we must learn not to follow that first reaction, but to pause and see what we truly want to do. I hope that uh, answers the question, doesn't it? Okay. Well, the word mistake uh, addresses itself to the world and to our, uh, to the, uh, the, the question was, um, uh, what is the real error that we've been talking about, uh, mistakes and errors and correction and so forth, and what is the error, what is the mistake? And I think uh, along with that is the question, uh, are there any mistakes? And of course, in truth, there are no mistakes. The time comes in which you look back on your life and you see the absolute beauty of it, the shining perfection of it. Everything you did served to take you closer to home. So on that level, there are no mistakes. But within the present, we appear to have choices. And we were either choosing the more peaceful way or the less peaceful way. And to choose the less peaceful way is a mistake not in terms of truth, but in terms of the world. 
So it is it's a delay. But as I've said before, our way is a way of mistakes. We must learn to love our mistakes, be happy for our mistakes. The places and the patches of our life that are still hurting us are where we think we aren't making mistakes. Everything that we do in the world is a mistake, but we've only seen it in certain areas. And as we see our mistake, there is a period that we go through in which we simply choose the gentlest, the more gentle mistake. This, the mistake that will, that will delay us least. So it's not that the alternative is, has, is, is perfect and right, but it's a little more gentle. It will cause us a little less difficulty. So, as we've said many times here, it's best not to act out your anger around other people because this simply complicates the situation. There are, there are easier and quicker ways to let go of anger than picking up the phone and getting several other people involved in it in the situation or the outrage. This is not a happy thing to do, and it complicates the situation and delays us. It is a mistake. But to remain in the world is a mistake, and so to not act out the anger is a mistake also because the only thing that would have no mistake would be simply to lay aside your body and to make yourself completely available to everyone. But we're not in a position to do that. It's not possible yet for us to do that. So we do what is possible for us to do. We help in the way that we can. There is only one mistake. There are two wonderful lessons in A Course in Miracles that are side by side. Um, let me see if I can remember the titles. Um, let me recognize the mistakes so that it can be corrected. That may not be an exact quote. And then the one that follows it is, let me recognize that there are no mistakes. Does anyone remember the exact wording of those two lessons? They're side by side. Let, let me recognize the problem so it can be solved. Yes. Let, let me recognize the problem has been solved. Okay, that's it. Right. Those are the two. So it uses the word problem. Did everyone hear those two lessons? They're, they're just lovely. If you want to just pick those up and read those two. So it, it, it talks about the fact that there is actually only one mistake, and that is our belief that we are separate from God. But this mistake in the world takes many, many forms, and at the start of our journey, we have to take the little forms. They're like little weeds, and we pull them out one by one, and then we begin to realize there's only one weed. And then we realize there are no weeds, there's only a garden. 